Hello and welcome to the Noisy Hadger podcast, episode two. I hope you've had a good week. I've been I've been trying to race through all sorts of copywriting and podcast interviews and comedy promo and all sorts. Uh, so it's been quite busy, but pretty positive, I think. On Tuesday, I'll be launching my first ever comedy night at a local wine bar and have sold a really good amount of tickets. Like, just I'm so surprised and uh, thrilled, to be honest. And then the following day, I'm doing my first ever slot at the Vauxhall Comedy Club. So that's kind of daunting. Um, a few other bits and bobs of good news, but on the whole, yeah, not a bad, not a bad week at all. Um, I know last week was a, <laughs> my first podcast was a fairly subdued episode, but I felt calm and quiet and subdued. So that was the that was the tone we went for. Um, thank you so much for your lovely comments. I've had some really, really super, super sweet messages and texts, obviously most from friends, but a few from strangers. So thank you. If you do like the podcast, do please uh, share it and tell your friends if you think they'll like it too. And, you know, feel free to leave reviews and all that. I think um, Apple Podcasts is the is the place to do that. So this week will not just be me talking at you and pondering the world. Instead, it's a bit more radio styly, I suppose. And it's all about the Edinburgh Fringe. Uh, so I was there for the final week of the Fringe. So just last last week of August. And it's, well, it's quite an intense sort of atmosphere, borderline stress inducing, to be honest. But I saw some fantastic shows and I got to meet up with some friends and acquaintances and people I know through um, through the Soho Theatre Comedy Lab that I did over the summer, um, as well as like there were a few people who I've just messaged on Instagram asking to be friends. <laughs> they were very nice. And actually, on that note, I do want to say to sort of fellow halfy Iranians, Patrick Monaghan and Darius Davies, because they were absolutely lovely. Um, I've only sort of seen them on comedy gigs and then sent them a couple of dms and they were really really lovely and invited me to join them after after the comedy shows and stuff so it was just it was nice because I was actually getting day two end of day two I was very very lonely and I don't know if you're familiar with sex in the city but it was like that scene where Carrie's in Paris and she's looking at the table of friends and she's just walking past all alone and I just felt like I was doing that wandering through um wandering through Edinburgh uh, so it's kind of nice to actually hang out and get a bit of the buzz and it just reminded me just how long it's been since I've been around people either groups of friends or groups of half friends and half acquaintances and you know just that fun when you're just yeah just around people and buzzing and saying whatever comes to your head and just feeling really chilled out because I do think this godforsaken pandemic has like de-chilled us hasn't it I think because we've been in our heads, in our homes, on our phones, everything's been heightened. And we're kind of like, oh no, when we step outside in the normal world, we all are okay. You know, we're all, we're actually all right. We're not all these absolute bastards. Anyway, so Edinburgh left me with a face rash uh, because after cutting out gluten for several months, um, I had three white bread sandwiches in a row. And yeah, that confirmed to me through the medium of scabby face and blotchy chin that I do indeed need to keep gluten out of my diet. So now I'm one of those bitches. <laughs> um, but I came away mainly from Edinburgh with a clutch of interviews and comments from some truly brilliant comedians and wonderful people who had lots of things to say, not only about their Edinburgh Fringe experiences, but about the festival itself and what they think really needs to improve as well. So yeah, I think I've spoken to, I've got eight comedians. I spoke to five or six while I was there and then a couple on Zoom and uh, some I sat down with for you know a good 20 minutes half an hour others just got five or ten minutes with but they gave me yeah some real fascinating insight into what it's like to be a performer and also the range of experiences as well because it is it's very different for a lot of people all depends on uh, the sort of backing you've got your financial situation whether you know whether you're trying to make and make a profit out of it, whether you're looking at it as a sort of training month. Uh, so yeah, just a range of experiences. Yeah, and the Fringe was actually, you know, it's quite interesting because it was the first full one since the pandemic. They did a sort of a bit of one last year, I think. Um, and the run-up was sort of marred by controversy uh, set against that familiar backdrop of, of class warfare. Attendance was down. The Fringe Society uh, didn't release the app that they'd previously 
released, which sort of helped audiences discover new artists and performers. Um, so yeah, there was a lot of people asking like, where's all our money going? So I kind of wanted to see, yeah, how people's experiences have been, both from a creative perspective and from their sort of opinion on on the organisational side of it. So I'm going to basically talk you through some of these uh, clips and interviews um, and I really hope you enjoy it. So we'll start in the Pleasance Courtyard because that gives you a real sense of the buzz of the fringe. We're in the final week of the fringe. So there's kind of a range of emotions going on by that point. You've got some performers and comedians who are enjoying rave reviews and sold out shows. And you've got a few that are perhaps feeling a bit more vulnerable. And and also, I think it was just off the back of the nominations coming out. So a few people were a bit disappointed. But I was so, so lucky to bump into Amy Annette and Tessa Coates. Now, I've known Amy Annette for quite a few years now, actually. We worked together on a book uh, years ago, a book for Virago. I uh, wrote an essay for it and she was one of the editors. And we got to know each other quite well doing literary panels and that sort of thing. And she is just fantastic. She's a comedian and she's also a producer. And she was at Edinburgh working on an improv show called Playdate. And also she directed her friend Tessa Coates' show, Get Your Tessa Coates, You've Pulled. And Tessa is a very well-established comedian. This is her ninth fringe. Um, I heard her Radio 4 special last year. And yeah, they both spoke to me about their feelings on the fringe. We start with Amy, who's a little hungover. Yes, today I'm feeling very hazy hungover. Um, it was a birthday party last night. And I actually intercepted a lot of drinks for my partner that I was worried that if he drank, he would die. So I drank them. We went to see Paul Williams. He's a Kiwi comedian and he is also a musician. So he did, he has a comedy show, but then he also did quite a sincere, lovely music gig. And I think everyone just kind of wept because sincerity is so rare it's just like someone singing from the heart and not trying to undercut it in any way now amy's never performed her own show at the fringe but she has produced directed and promoted lots of them so i asked her what advice she'd give to newbie performers and comedians um figure out how not to spend too much money because it you can easily spend a lot of money on like pr and and i think flyering probably does make a big difference but like just have a keen eye on where your money's going. But having said that, what I would say is make sure you know why you're doing it. If it's just because you vaguely want to win an award, I wouldn't do it that way because the awards, as great as they are if you win, there are so many people who have never even got a look in who have it's so successful because they came and did a show that was really something that they wanted to say or really made sense to them at the time. Um, you got to do it for yourself. Not to sound American at the end. Do it for yourself, please. I've really had a really lovely fringe, but I would say that is entirely to do with how much I have liked the people this year. I've made so many nice friends, and I really feel this one, it always sort of feels like trench warfare, and it always feels like a sort of marine boot camp. This is too long, this is too intense, everyone's in tears. And now you're listening to writer and performer Tessa Coates, who has a lot to say about the way the fringe was run this year. This fringe, the, like the first one back... It's like it's been it's been too much and it's been ill thought through and ill managed and ill um, ill prepared and Just from I, the whole app, organization side app yeah from the, the, the yeah exactly that the app the stuff a lack of compassion in the programming of like the scheduled turnaround time in my venue is seven minutes. So there is no margin for error. The show before me like can, can, has to go down exactly on time. No one can be slow getting out of the venue. Like it's, it's, That's insane. And it's not just performers who are affected by this year's organisational decisions. It's genuinely very hard to be an audience member this year because the stuff isn't there for you. There is no way to be like, what's on now? And there used to be a joint venue brochure that was like assembly, underbelly, uh, pleasance, all together in time order. So you're like, okay, great, I've got an hour. What should I see? Now those three venues are competing with each other and so they have separate brochures. So you need to be walking around with three brochures now all the time. There's no app. The e-ticket thing is a bit of a nightmare. Like it's just not been an easy experience. Tessa's one of the few performers at the Fringe who will do the whole month without a day off. Like most performers will take a day off or they might even just do half a run. But yeah, she did the whole run so I wanted to know a bit about resilience uh, not just for her but about other performers what has the fringe been like in general for her 
Definitely this run, I mean, has had huge highs and huge lows. And I think definitely, like, day two, I came out of my show. And we're currently recording this in the Pleasant's Courtyard. And every single table, picnic table here, had a performer crying. <laughs> I, think, I think everyone had just had such a rough show. The venues were collapsing. The backstages were leaking. Like, lights, you know, people couldn't make their projectors work, their lights, their sound, their stuff. And, like, people come to, especially people who've never been before, and especially the Americans, come with shows they've been working on for a year and then they're suddenly, instead of playing an amazing, beautiful theatre, they're in a shipping container and their backstage is just literally the, the ground outside and they wait on the gravel and then a clown goes in before them and like throws some wine over the stage and then they're like, OK, he- hello, everyone. So I think it's just like a lot to get your head around. And finally, I asked her about her goals and expectations and manifestations and did she get what she wanted out of the Fringe this year? So I was like, right, manifestation is one day on the sold-out board, that's achievable, and we'll take two four-star reviews in uh, print media, you know, like something prestigious as opposed to, like, fringe dog <laughs> dot org. Um, and I was like, those feel like achievable goals, external goals. But I don't ever like to put... You can't be like, and then I want a TV show, because you're like, from who? From where? What are you talking about? I think that way absolute madness lies of, like, um, if you come here, and I see a lot of, like, a lot of people are doing exactly that. If you come here hoping for x y and z or to be nominated or for this like you will make yourself insane because those things will not happen whereas if you come here being like i want to give the people who come to my show every day for an hour the best possible experience and i want them to leave being like wow i really laughed i had a really fun time that was i i feel great like that's really all you can ask for and that's that's the only thing you can control and do thank you so much for coming have a good night guys thank you That's James Barr just after finishing another sold-out performance of his show Straight Jokes, which he put on at the Underbelly in Bristol Square. We had a quick chat about his general Edinburgh fringe experience, especially in the final week, which is pretty exhausting, what his aims were going into it, and how even though his whole show is a response to being told to play down who he really is, he's still in a constant battle to ignore the voices that tell him he has to change parts of himself in order to fit in or be more palatable to certain people. I'm really tired, but it's, it's amazing, isn't it? It's like a boot camp for comedy. So you just like learn how to deal with everything and become such a better comedian. So I feel very like lucky that I've done it and I can still walk, whereas the last time I did it, I got like a reactive arthritis at the end of the fringe and they couldn't walk for three months. So my health's good. I'm alive. I had a five-star review in the Metro. I'm like, I'm good. I'm happy. But I'm tired and I want to go home and be with my dog. (laughs) Sales this year are pretty difficult, I think, for everybody. So um, it's been quite slow getting reviews in. took a while to get my review. But I was selling out every weekend. It was just slow in the week. Mm -hmm. A little bit low numbers across the board for most shows, I think. So, But I still feel pretty blessed that I've sold out. It's a small room, but it's probably also the review that's helped. Yeah. yeah, it's just a nightmare, isn't it? It's just a lot of pressure, and you're only one person. I wanted a good review, but I also wanted to tell my story yeah. and like share that with people, and I wanted people to listen to what I was saying. Before getting any reviewer in, I was like, why is no one listening to what I'm saying? It feels like it's just being ignored. So it kind of felt like the whole fringe was triggering my trauma where I've been told not to speak out not to be myself not to be gay not to be that so I was like oh my god everyone is like gaslighting me of course this bit I really related to so I asked James is he now free of those demons that tell him what to do or how to act or how to tone himself down no it's just constant it's never going to go away is it we just need to remind ourselves all the time not to listen to the shit we've been taught Mm. when we were younger I think or are still told but we just accept that things aren't good enough like with the reviewer stuff I was just accepting like oh no one wants to listen to me so I got my finger up my arse and started emailing everyone and was like actually this does deserve to be listened to now when you're a performer I suppose telling yourself that your work deserves to be seen or heard or experienced is probably the biggest hurdle I guess it's been the biggest hurdle for me and To be honest, I don't think I even look at it like, does it deserve to be seen or heard? It's more, just a more casual attitude. I just think you've got to go, I don't care if it deserves to be seen or heard or not. I just want to do it. That's that's what I'm trying to aim to do because, you know, not everyone needs to see or hear or experience your stuff. I think you just have to decide to do it and give them the opportunity to experience it if they want to. But one comedian who... I don't think has this problem with wondering whether her stuff is worth uh, hearing or seeing is Sakisa. Now, Sakisa is 
really, really well known on the comedy scene. She's been in comedy for seven years. She's got all sorts of uh, TV and writing credits and radio credits. Um, and she's also an immigration lawyer as well, which she does alongside her comedy, which I think is amazing. I did speak to her actually about um, the whole labels thing and picking one or the other, but I don't think I've got time to fit everything into this to this podcast. But she was fantastic because she sat down with me in the final week of the fringe, which is when she would have been absolutely exhausted. I think she said that there was a little bit of a lull in the atmosphere because the nominations had been announced when we spoke and it can leave a lot of performers kind of feeling a bit deflated, um, even though obviously, you know, not everyone can win and it doesn't necessarily mean you're good or bad or whatever. But I think there was just a little bit of a a lower vibe <laughs> going around. Um, but yeah, she probably sounds a bit more melancholic than she actually was. I think she was just tired. And so I'm all the more grateful that she took the time out of her day to chat to me. Um, I think you can tell, you can tell a lot about a person's character when they just give you the time to talk, you know, um, and she's brilliant. So she taught a couple of, um, sessions at my Soho Theatre Comedy Lab course and, Honestly, it was a really transformative session for me. We did one on persona and her feedback and her clarity and her knowledge, not just of comedians, but her intuition about comedians as well. Um, I found I found super, super helpful. So, yeah, we sat down together and we chatted about her Edinburgh experience, her motivations going into it. And also, unavoidably, the for her, the topic of you know, not feeling mainstream and feeling like an outsider. She was talking about how few people of colour there were at her shows and that left her feeling like she wasn't connecting with the audiences that might, you know, perhaps really, really uh, enjoy her work the most. You are at the Fringe and your show is doing pretty fucking well, I think. Tell me about it. Um, yeah, it's doing okay. It's a... It's a a roller coaster here at the fringe. People keep saying to me I'm doing really well. But sometimes when you're in here it doesn't feel like you're doing quite well. Um but I've had some really nice reviews and stuff like that and people have been coming to the show and that's been really lovely. But I think when you're in a bubble you don't really get to see the achievements from outside. But I came up here and I I had like three goals when I came up here and I've achieved them so I'm quite happy with that. So the goals I had was one four star review one sold out show and uh, get some dick get some dick <laughs> get some dick but everything else has been great I've had quite a few quite a lot of sold out shows five four star reviews so I can't really can't complain but it's just like three years worth of debuts up here and it is obviously quite competitive like we're all really good friends and everyone gets on with everyone but it does feel like it's Hunger Games yeah. when you didn't want to be put in Hunger Games. Like, I just came up here to do some jokes. Being here for the four months is my first time doing it for the four months. It's exhausting, it's a roller coaster. There's been days where I've been like, I don't want to do the show. How, how have you got yourself to, to do the show when you're feeling like that? You just kind of have to force yourself to do the show. I've had some really nice people here around me who've been very supportive um, and I've always had my back and I've someone that, and because we're all going really through the same things, they know exactly how I'm feeling with certain things and some people have been where I've been, where they've had their debut, so they understand exactly what the situation is. But there have been some amazing days, there have been some lovely days um, and I've had so many laughs, so much fun, I've seen my comic friends every day. It's just um, a crazy environment. It's a comedy boot camp. It is a comedy boot camp. I know some of my friends are like, I'll never do it again. Because the month is really long. Especially when you're a person of colour here, the month is really long. Because there's not many of us here. Um, and that is... Especially when you talk about audience-wise. Um, I will have like minimum one PLC in my show I think I had one show where I had none and it's just like okay my show is not for Radio 4 audiences but that's sometimes what I've been getting so it's a weird place to be especially when you're so used to doing the London circuit how do you how do you combat that how do you deal with that when you're on stage and you're like they don't get this the way I want people to get this like, but the people that don't get it it's not for them um, I know who my demographic is and audience is I think as a debut, 
it's difficult because, um, especially here, because there are some nights I've been like, oh, my audience is in. Yeah, this is my audience. And there have been some nights where I'm like, this is not my audience. But people want to come and see the shows that I debut in, especially when they've been hyped up and stuff like that. So... So in those situations, and I'm not talking about the audience, I'm talking about you, do you just plough through and go, oh, well, I'm not connecting? And does it heighten that sense of not fitting in or not being the mainstream? Yeah, I've had feelings that I didn't fit in here quite a, quite a lot while I was up here. Um, I felt it made me think, rethink about who I was as a comic and that maybe I was just a club comic. But there's a lot of like talk here about not only just race but classism here um, at Edinburgh Fringe so all that kind of discussion just keep going round all month um, about those two major subjects you do have to plough through I don't enjoy the show as much when it happens like that and you can tell within like probably the first 10 minutes of the show whether you're going to have fun in it or not and if it's not then I'll just plough through Mm -hmm. and it's just like reading a script basically yeah, exactly. So I'm I'm very new to comedy. You've been in it for seven years, eight years, so you know it far better. How does the class thing impact you? I think this fringe was kind of different because obviously it's the first one coming out of the pandemic. But like when we talk about fees towards the fringe, um, accessibility to performers who couldn't afford PR, couldn't afford producers, and one of the things that was not available was the fringe app. Um, and that was obviously really annoying and gutting for people who are on the free fringe, who are at Just the Tonics and those kind of venues where it's pay what you want. And I actually, I've, I hand up party bags at the end of my show, and the end, there's a business card in it, and the end, on the back of it it says, please go and see the shows at the free fringe or the pay what you want venues because there are great comics out there. And it's, it's only because they don't are able to afford being in the Pleasance or being at Gilded and Underbelly and the type of audiences sometimes that come here, the majority of audience are like people that are very much old school cavity, like comedy savvy and it does feel like you are being judged here mm-hmm. on a day to day basis. Yeah there's a huge amount of pressure it's like every single show it's not just that you're getting reviews, it's like the audience themselves are reviewing you, yeah. it's not like Nine ten o'clock at night in London, everyone's pissed. Everyone, it's people trying to all be reviewers and kind of yeah have an opinion. Yeah, like I my time's at eight twenty five, and I thought that was a good time. I'll get some nice people in. Um, some maybe they've had a drink, some dinner, energy. And some days, most half the days, it has been that way. But some days, it has been difficult when you're like. Did you not know you were coming to a party? Why are you not happy? This I is mean, a party. It's, it's in the show. It's in the, it's in the show name. Do you not know you're coming to a party? Can you just like have some fun? Um, a couple of days ago, the nominations came out for like best newcomer, and a lot of us obviously wasn't nominated. And it kind, I did. I always knew I wasn't going to get nominated. I've always said that from the beginning. But even though I kind of knew I wasn't going to be nominated, it kind of hit. That it kind of hit hard because like best newcomer. Is is a nice thing to be acknowledged, and especially because I was feeling not understood by industry, and that was felt like it could have been a, like a acceptance acknowledgement. But then I kind of got over that twenty four hours later. Um, I mean, it's, it's easy to look at sort of practically and like um, probability wise. You look at the numbers, you go, okay, well, what was he? But it is hard, especially when you have dealt with um, different intersections of identity that you always feel like, OK, I don't quite fit in there, I'm not Radio 4 or whatever. And you're like, if I can just get this, and it must... Um, well, for me, I, I know my own life, it's like, when the fuck is this break coming or when will this acceptance come? I kind of got to a point, maybe like a couple of years ago, where I just went, fuck it. This is who I am, and this is the whole point of my show, that this is who I am. I accept. I know who I am as a person, and you can either accept it or you don't. Like I'm not going to change for no one. Um, when I first, when I was starting out, people used to be like, "Oh, you shouldn't really talk about sexist stuff or like like your vagina and stuff like that. It's a bit vulgar." Men talk about it all the time. Why can't I talk about it? Same with like the racing. People would be like, "Oh, you shouldn't really talk about race on stage." And I'm like, 
you're talking you talk too much about race i'm like well this is my own experience so i'm going to talk about race about being white exactly <laughs> like you love your hummus like you and you talk about that all the time so i just think it's interesting that how people will make different comments not realizing that this is part of who you are and it's because they've not lived through it but the whole point of me talking about certain things is so people have a better understanding and are educated about that and um, what do you do you think this is i mean obviously everyone associates edinburgh fringe with um success like everyone goes okay if you're going to be a comedian you've got to be at the fringe do you think that having done that do you think it's it's going to it is a vital turning point in your development as a comedian do you think it is for everyone um i came up here already having accolades and tv exposure and the fringe was bef- quite notoriously known especially for newcomers to be your breakthrough into that in, into that world and me and a few other comics came up here already having those accolades as debuts so if anything i came up here going do not ruin your career do not ruin your <laughs> career do not ruin your career with a show um uh and luckily, it's gone quite well, so I'm happy with that. There's been no one-star or two-star reviews. That's what we want. That's what we didn't want. Yeah, I mean, they're just piling in. Yeah. I don't think everyone needs to do the fringe now. I think, if anything, we've kind of proved that you don't need to have the fringe to have a career. Like, things like social media help um, people's careers and stuff like that. You don't need to have the fringe. But I think, for me personally, I wanted to do it because I felt like I was ready to do an hour show and I wanted to showcase who I was as a comedian and prove that I can make a show to myself if anything because I've always been a better performer than I am writer and I didn't want to I wanted to be like I'm a well that's a whole round of comedian I want to be able to be proved that I'm a comedian not all comedians go up to the fringe to do a full month of shows in fact probably most of them who go up there don't have a full show on you know your standard thing is like a one hour that you do for most days during that month uh, maybe having a day or two off but plenty of comedians especially those who kind of want to just get the vibe and see what they need to do and maybe soak up some inspiration they'll go for a few days or a week and they'll see what shows they can get on whether it's um, open mic slots or uh, doing an MC slot or various panel shows there's there's loads and loads of things to take part in um, one such person was Georgia Thorpe. Now, again, I met Georgia through the Soho Theatre Comedy Lab and we decided to have a Zoom catch up after the Fringe. Uh, in fact, just a few days ago it was to talk about what she got up to in Edinburgh and how it's helped her comedy. Um, so we went the last week of August and but there was sort of up to sort of six of us, but but there was five of us and all older comedians and we had our sort of a tagline, um, do older comedians do it better or something. I wasn't actually going to do it initially, but then uh, one of the, the people had booked it and it was their ambition that they always wanted to go to the fringe and it was an opportunity. So even though I said no at first, because of course it was a commitment, so I had to work out the practicalities of how I would actually do that with home, etc. And then I just thought, you know, let's take the opportunity. So it was seven days, five of us, over that week, we had the 7.30 slot. That was quite a nice uh, for one-hour show. So we all did stand-ups. So we're all individual stand-ups that we, <laughs> that's what we did. So did you go in there with specific goals and uh, what did you get out of it? Yeah, it's interesting, actually, because I did a whole load of thing about what I learned, what I enjoyed, what I wish, what I wish had happened, what I could do next time. And, and then they were at the end about what does success mean to you? So it was like, I did enjoy it. Um, and I think it's those factors about it was an experience. I didn't really have any expectations. I sort of went with a sort of an open mind and thinking, well, how is this going to be? I was curious, but um, and yes, we had apart from the last day, we had an audience every day. So we had thirty-seven was the most we had, and then funny enough, it was the day after we had zero. So I don't think it was anything about it was the Sunday. It was the last day. And do you know what? That, that was a really nice day as well because we decided to carry on and, and I was gonna we were taking turns to MC as well, again developing our skills. And so it was my MC day. And I actually had a really I actually really enjoyed just practicing some stuff that I had prepared, but I just then practiced it with the people that that were there. 
So overall, it was a, a really positive experience. I think it helped me think about what I wanted to do as a as a, as a comedian or my stand up. Did I want to continue? <laughs> had I had enough? Um, so it really just gave me a lot of things to think about, really. The things that I really enjoyed, the things that, I've, that were difficult, the things that, yeah, just that little internal review. I actually had a really good long chat with Georgia. I think we spoke for about 50 minutes or an hour, but I only had space for about three minutes on this podcast. But um, I will do another another episode with her another time. But when I actually bumped into Georgia at the Fringe, she was doing a spot on Christoph Epaminondas's show. Uh, now, Christoph, again, met him through Soho Theatre. I think this is like the Soho Theatre Comedy Lab bit because I think we've got one more one more alumna to talk to. But Christoph did his show, uh, Christoph Epaminondas and Friends, Too Much Encouragement at uh, Just the Tonic at the Caves. And I think his show was, he, he had about 30 minutes that he wanted to um, to do and then he um, had Georgia on for 10 or 15 minutes and he also did emceeing and I mean I thought his show was fantastic and his emceeing was really brilliant and he talked to me in our chat about how he intentionally wanted to improve his emceeing and his crowd work so here's what he had to say about what he wanted to get out of Edinburgh. Personally I just wanted to get better at performing I wanted to get better at crowd work because I kind of emcee my own set because I have like an opener so it's just like get better at performing get it better at emceeing I've written a little bit but I haven't written that much I've written a bit and tried some things out but I think it's more just been about like getting way more comfortable on stage and then also learning from other shows and having a think about what makes a good hour because like what I'm doing is more just like a collection of bits which is really fun but also just thinking like do you need a narrative can it just be great bits um, how do you I think it's very difficult to keep the momentum of just like huge laughs for an hour yeah. or indeed any laughs <laughs> so I think it's given me a bit of a thought on like if I ever wanted to do an hour, like, how would I structure it? Have you had any sort of turning points, light bulb moments about this? Like yeah. Whether I've, you've, you've kind of figured out who you are on stage or how to rate the perfect joke or what makes people laugh? I think one thing which has kind of clicked a little bit in Edinburgh is that, like, I think I used to put way... I used to think in my mind that, like, crowd work was all about being really, really, really funny and witty. I think it's more just about, like, riding the sort of momentum of the room a bit and, like, almost the rhythm of what you say sometimes more than, like, whether anything is particularly smart. And I think I used to put like way more pressure on myself and be like, oh, these people are like geniuses. When it's actually just like, if you have a nice warm room and you say something, mod you know, something in the room, then people will respond to that. And I think that's true of loads of comedy as well. It's also funny because like, I've seen people in Edinburgh, like sometimes you'll see them in a huge crowd one place and a small crowd the other. And they'll, you'll see them in a huge audience with, who are really warm and you'll be like, this is the best comedian I've ever seen. Then you see them in a small room and they don't do very well. Got nothing to do with them. But I think being able to be like actually sometimes it is just the context and the audience whereas before because i mainly perform in london frankly to smaller rooms i'd be like oh well i'm obviously nowhere near as good as this person but it's like well think about the context you can't judge yourself on your worst gig you can't judge yourself on your best gig but a friend of mine told me something which i thought was quite smart which is like you kind of like you are your average gig your average gig is what you are you're not the best you're not the worst you're somewhere in between and comedy and crowd work clearly weren't the only skills that Christoph was able to improve over the fringe. I don't know if you've, well, if you've not been to the fringe, um, you need to know about the fly ring because it is really something else. You are constantly bombarded, obviously, with performers and promoters uh, trying to get you to come to their shows. So there are a lot of flyers. And this year, uh, there were the bin strikes, which I actually didn't know about. I just thought it was always messy in Edinburgh because I went a few years ago and it was pretty messy then but I guess I hadn't realized how much messier it was this year and it was only when I heard a Scottish person literally say to someone I don't think the tourists realize that there's even a bin strike that I then realized there was a bin strike um, despite my mother having texted me about the bins so but flyering really is the only way to get people to see your show if you are not a massive name. And even if you are a massive name, apparently people still need flyers. And so Christoph told me about how he dealt with the rejection and how he managed to turn flyering and promoting his show into definitely one of his strengths. The flyering can be tough. I quite, I kind of like it, but it's like it's a bit of an emotional roller coaster because basically the hour and a half before my show is where... I fly people. I would, say, and I do like a little survey at the end. I would say eighty percent of the audience just come from that, so it feels like quite a lot of pressure. 
And inevitably, you deal with lots of rejection. I mean, you know, you fly 200 people, the vast majority don't come. I remember the first day doing it and being like, oh my God, this is kind of humiliating. But now it's just like, ah, screw it. Like, you just need people in. And then it's all worth it when you actually get to, like, do 45 minutes of stand-up to actual people. I also asked Christoph whether his Edinburgh had been especially stressful. I mean, a lot of comedians obviously looked very stressed by that final week, but he didn't at all. He looked a bit tired after his show, uh, but he said that not drinking every night is probably the way to uh, to stay healthy and to stay alert and not completely exhaust yourself by the end of it, which, yes, I definitely agree with. Um, and would always recommend a good night's sleep. Um, but he also said that he probably doesn't really have the stress that some people had because he was always looking at this as an investment, like he was almost paying for the boot camp. You know, James James Barr used the term boot camp as well. Um, and I think Sakisa did too. Um, it's, it's an investment in his um, career and his skills and his comedy. And obviously he had some funds that he could put to this, much in the same way as you'd pay for a course or a writing retreat or whatever. Um, so he didn't really have that stress. But to talk about the money side of things, I got to chat to, again, fellow alumna, um, Victoria Melody, who also did the Soho Theatre Comedy Lab with us. Uh, now, Victoria has been on the scene for a long, long time. She sort of mixes comedy and theatre and she's an artist and does all sorts of things and I went to see her show Headset which was honestly brilliant it really it had me in tears it's a show about uh, sort of about ADHD and it's very meta to incorporate lessons in stand-up comedy and she does stand-up comedy and um, talks about all sorts of things uh, related to comedy the stage um, expression and and ADHD as well but Victoria did a brilliant blog just last week, breaking down completely transparently all her Edinburgh costs. And she shared the profit she made from her fringe show. Now, she had a really successful show by most accounts, but it still had its first week uncertainty. And well, as you'll find out, even a really successful show won't necessarily make you the big bucks. How was my Edinburgh experience? Um, so it it was mixed. It it was a brand new show that I had previewed, but the critics hadn't seen it yet, and the previews had been very friendly. There were always lots of people I knew in the audience, and so. It hadn't been validated yet. And so I had those kind of nerves of taking it to Edinburgh where the reviewers are going to decide whether it's good or not. So I had that pressure. Um, also, the media really got behind it and were saying, oh, this is going to be one of the best shows, like the Times, the Metro, the Stage, like the, a bunch of newspapers basically said I, I was going to be one of the the good shows but they hadn't seen it yet so they were just going on my track record and because this this is my fifth show and so then there was the added pressure of it has to be good because it's, it's got to live up to the hype now and then I got to Edinburgh and um the, there just wasn't any audience really and the Pleasant's Courtyard was really empty. That's that's where I was performing in, in one of the spaces off the courtyard. And we were just all, all the performers and artists were really worried because we thought it wouldn't bounce back after the pandemic. And we thought, oh, no, we just invested all this money and time and we're going to be performing to 10 people every day. Victoria was actually performing at the same venue as Tessa Coates and, in fact, she actually was on straight after Tessa. So I asked her if she had the same recollection of that first week. Yeah, that first week was just horrendous. And and the venue give you some tickets to give away in the free, in the first few days. It's called papering. And so we were giving tickets away. And then of course audiences then aren't invested in the same way. They haven't really read what the show's about. They've just basically taken a punt on a free ticket. They come in and they're not invested. And so they were just walking out. And that just, you know, really 
dints your confidence, especially with a brand new show. And especially when the show is about you. And so you're quite vulnerable. Uh, but then, but then, you know, my look really did change because I let the reviewers in. So I started on the third and then the reviewers were allowed in from the six and they came thick and fast and the reviews were good and they published them quite early. And so that meant that I could go and put my stars on the posters. And so then people, audiences were coming and they were making a beeline for me because I had good stars. And then word got about that it was a, a good show and I started selling out. And yeah, and, and and people weren't walking out anymore. And I and I found confidence in the show again. I realized it was it was a good show. <laughs> And it meant that when I was selling out, I was making loads of money, you know, in ticket sales. And so then that gave me this kind of new confidence, like, okay, that row of people don't look like they're enjoying it. That person's asleep. But come on, you're a professional. You're being paid for this. This is your job. You know, the other 95% of this audience are here and invested. You've got to perform for them. And so that was a good kind of switch for me to go come on you know don't be affected by the people that look like they hate it <laughs> so selling tickets is one thing to feel validated and to get confidence but what if you're not um, and is it even possible in Edinburgh to continue feeling confident when no one's coming to your shows Edinburgh is a pressure cooker and it's a bit like the Hunger Games as well, where you've got all this competition of other shows um, going on. Sometimes you can hear the shows next door to you and everyone's cheering and laughing and your room is completely quiet, you know, and um, people are, are being hailed as the next new superstar in the media. And so it's such an alien feeling that it seems like you need more external validation in Edinburgh than you do on a normal tour. But also audiences are seeing five, six shows a day. They're tired, they're exhausted. It's it's almost like you've got to be really extreme to go down with a, a good or with an audience in Edinburgh. You've got to be kind of shocking or if you're a quieter show and storytelling or whatever, it's hard to um, be seen and heard over the noise. You always have to come down to your taste because your taste is what makes you unique and you've just got to remember you're not everyone's cup of tea, but you've just got to be your own cup of tea. Naturally, very wise words, but what about that cost breakdown? You will want to listen to this. Uh, so, so we should be clear. I, I, I'm. This was a theatre show. So, although there was stand-up comedy in it and it was meta, um, it was a theatre show. And so, with theatre shows, there's very often more expenses. There's uh, a set. It's very funny because I, I think I might axe the set after Edinburgh, uh, but that's another subject. But there's a set, there's lighting cues, sound cues, film cues. It's a bit more expensive and to put on a, a theatre show than a, a stand-up comedy show. And... Um, and so I need like a fully qualified technician to run it. I needed my technician from home to come up to Edinburgh to teach the local Edinburgh technician because I couldn't afford to bring and pay for my technician to stay up here the whole time. I needed a van uh, to, to bring the setup. Um, you know, there's additional expenses. And, you know, I, I'm not young and so I want some luxury if I'm going to get I was living out in Leaf which is a bit further out and I did save money living out in Leaf but I was self-producing up there and so some evenings you know I'd just be sat there for hours stapling stars onto my flyers so I'd be exhausted and then I'd just get a taxi home so I definitely didn't do it in the cheapest way possible and so my outgoings were big and I can see where I can make savings and that's partly why I wanted to publish what I 
what the incomings and outgoings were because to help people make an informed decision. But my show was seen as very successful and in terms of ticket sales, it did very, very well. So, but out of um, £15,500, after I split, uh, did my ticket split with the venue, they take 45%. I was left with eight thousand five hundred pounds, and then out of that eight thousand five hundred pounds, after I'd spent everything and including not paying myself, I walked away with two hundred pounds, which is eight pound thirty three a show. <laughs> so, despite basically getting minimum wage for her stage time. Victoria did overall have a pretty good fringe, but not everyone does. And one person I spoke to is Davina Bentley. Now, Davina had a 40 or 45 minute show also at Just the Tonic at the Caves, um, just after Christoph actually. And I got in touch with her because I follow her on um, on Instagram because she has some hilarious reels. You might have seen her on TikTok or Instagram. She's super, super funny with sketches and parodies and characters. She had definitely had a bit of a, a bad one. And she posted some positive feedback about her show, but it was off the back of really wanting to pull out and, and feeling really, really low. So I dropped her a message to see if she'd be up for just a little chat and to let it all out before going on stage and do listen to the end because it perfectly captures the highs and lows of stand-up. I mean, I felt in such a shit way a couple of days ago and it is, it, it is very hard to reach out to friends and, you, ha- you know, one, there are a lot of people in Edinburgh. I wouldn't normally do such a big post being like, this is shit, but because I was posting after the event being like, look, I wanted to quit, mm. it felt awful and now I've just had an amazing gig and there were 12 people in, which I know doesn't sound a lot, but having gone from pulling two gigs... Um, having 12 people in who were so up for it and loved it and it was such a fun gig was like oh my god it's okay I didn't need to pull it but I guess you just have to be really resilient yes how have you ridden that wave over this month because it sounds utterly insane I do this um comedy writing and producing class and I zoomed with my teacher and she went are you all right because she's done loads of Edinburgh's and she's like an amazing uh, comedy director and writer and she went are you all right and I went look it's not Syria but it's not not Syria <laughs> like, I feel <laughs> awful saying that and I know, like, I'm aware this is a very lucky position to be doing your art. Like, so I think if we're talking about like as being an artist or as doing, it's it's a very bad commercial decision. I'm trying to think if there's anything positive. Yeah, some there's been pockets of niceness. Mm-hmm. There's been pockets of people being amazing. Some of my shows have been amazing, and some of the audiences have been gorgeous. I'm really up for it, and I hope that I've got some audience members for life. Yeah. Um, that has probably made it okay. People being like, oh my God, we loved it. What's your Instagram? We're going to tell our daughter to see you, and like that stuff. So cheesy, but like building a connection with individual audience yeah. members has kind of made up for the. I'm not making any money, I've lost money, I can't get any industry in, this is not happening, what a fucking waste of six years of my life. Unless you've had, unless you've been, you know, that guy of the fringe, and you've, you know, and you've been that person, um, yeah, it can be quite a rough, but then maybe comedy just requires a lot of resilience, in which case, I'm barking up the wrong tree. It's um, it's really. I mean, I I find that just the resilience you require in life generally is is pretty fucking hard hard, to find. Yeah, yeah. Because I'm also a lawyer, and which I endlessly talk about. I mean, but you know, um, you do you need quite a lot of resilience to be in certain types of law firms, and I haven't got that kind of resilience. So I better find some form of resilience quickly. I once worked with this amazing lawyer who was also really funny, but he was really successful, and our firm was about to be taken over by this massive firm, and I was like, we're all freaking out. I called it like Game of firms because everyone's running around jumping ship having secret meetings it was so like dum, dum, dum. so we went in a room and I was like look I don't know what to do what am I going to do with this big takeover and he said I said I think I'm too weird for a big law firm and he said oh don't be ridiculous you and I both know how to hide our weirdness and I thought he was going to say you're not weird but that wasn't what he said he said like we just hide it well but isn't that more refreshing it was really refreshing, but I was like, well, he's weird as well. He's <laughs> he like, doesn't hide it. <laughs> he doesn't hide it, but he was also very successful and he was a really good lawyer. But I love that we were just openly talking about how much how much of the day could we hide who we were to make our livings. Which is often why a lot of creatives kind of give up on that idea of any sort of nine to five. 
unbelievable. Um, so the overall experience for you of the Fringe, so I'm guessing because you have another job, it's in a way, I mean, I know obviously you're saying it's very costly and there's a lot of financial pressure as well as kind of career pressure. What were you trying to get out of it? There was two things I was trying to get out of it, which I was advised to get about two years ago before the pandemic, which was a review, a four or five star review, and maybe an agent to come and see it. I have had neither of those oh, things. Maybe two weeks. No, I think um, because I haven't had those things, no one is. I'm sorry, I'm being very whingy and self indulgent. But perhaps, you know, it's a work in progress. Maybe it shouldn't be reviewed and no one's come to see it. But um, the thing I would like to get from it, like I've, I probably will have about 25 people in tonight, maybe 30. I would like all of them to really enjoy it and laugh because I can't really ask for anything else because the other things I wanted did not happen. And they may not have... I just, I'm, I'm sort of very conscious about... Because I do online stuff, and sometimes the online stuff goes well. I'm very conscious of maybe a lot of time having been wasted. Like, I just... A lot of me is like, oh, my God, am I in a pyramid scheme? Is this a pyramid scheme and I'm at the bottom of it? I think I am. And just before you go on, do you have a sort of strategy when you're really, really not feeling it and you just want... I do tend to, to feel it. I tend to feel it just before I go in, to be honest. I think um, Rob Copland... No, who told me it was called... No, Sakisa. She said it's called Power Hour, which I've only just heard of as a phrase, but I really like it. So we're in Power Hour now. Oh, we're okay. in Power 30 Minutes. Yeah, I might come and see. Is it, is it OK if I Super like, record yeah, like five minutes of it or something? Yeah, yeah, just How good do you feel now? I really enjoyed it. I take back everything I said before. I was just sad. <laughs> and Davina smashed it. Her show was fantastic. She was so, so funny. It's just so fascinating to me, isn't it? How so many things can get you down. And I don't know whether it comes from us feeling like we deserve things when no one really innately deserves anything. You just go through your life and you do what you want to do and... You might get the rewards or you might not or doing the thing is the reward in itself. And it's so hard, I think, with comedy and, well, with any sort of creative pursuit, especially when money is a factor, it's hard to just remember that, oh, this is the reward. And seeing Davina on stage, I hope she felt that because she was brilliant and all those worries and all that external validation. Obviously, there's so many other things factors involved like I said with money and work and taking time off and that sense of investment and that sense of wasted time but we do have to remember that the art is its own reward I think I'm going to try and remember that anyway thank you so much for listening I hope this episode has given you a real insight into the Edinburgh Fringe and a sense of what it's like for artists and performers and comedians there uh, huge thanks of course to all the people I spoke to Christopher Pamanondas, Georgia Thorpe Amy Annette, Tessa Coates Victoria Melody, Davina Bentley James Barr and of course the brilliant Sakisa who has actually just recorded uh, live at the Apollo so I cannot wait to watch that next week I'll be talking to my friend Amanda all about polyamory so I really hope you'll tune in see you then